This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I started taking Athletic Greens several months ago now. I sip on it first thing in the morning while I'm making my coffee, and it has become one of my favorite parts of my morning routine. As you all know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, I like to prioritize eating whole foods when it comes to my nutrition, but it can be really hard to get fresh produce and high quality food when you live on the road, especially if you're climbing in remote areas. One scoop of Athletic Greens has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. I think of it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. If I take Athletic Greens in the morning, I know I'm covered whatever I eat for the rest of the day. To make your decision easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you guys a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash nugget. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash nugget to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This episode is also brought to you by Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition with more than 40 professional climbers now using Fizzy Vantage products daily to support their training and climbing performance. Many of those names are people I've had on this show. Visit fizzyvantage.com to learn more about their many innovative research-based nutrition products and supplements, including their revolutionary supercharged collagen. That's my personal favorite. I am really enjoying the chocolate flavor right now. The performance-boosting Endurex and their delicious protein supplements, Weapons Grade Whey, and they have a plant-based protein called Powerplex. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition product. That's NUGGET15 at checkout, and you can find a direct link to this coupon right there in your podcast app. And finally, this episode is brought to you by Crimped. This might be the best tool in the app store when it comes to training for rock climbing. Right now, I'm feeling really motivated to work on leg and hip flexibility for a climb I want to do in Waco next winter. I'm already thinking that far ahead. And I need to be slightly more open in the hips to reach this foothold. And I know that I can do it if I just put in a little work over the next six months. Unfortunately, I hate stretching, but the great thing about Crimped is that they make it super easy. I just jump into the app, I pull up their hip and leg flexibility workout, there are videos that show me exactly what to do, there's a built-in timer that tells me how long to hold each stretch, I can just turn my brain off and do it, and I love it. If you are a self-coached climber and want proven workouts to improve your bouldering or your finger strength or endurance, flexibility, you name it, Crimped has you covered. So check it out. Crimped is spelled C-R-I-M-P-D. That's crimp with a D at the end. And you can find it in the App Store for iOS or Android. And you can use the web-based version at crimped.com. And it's totally free to try it out. Check out Crimped. That's crimp with a D at the end to get started with your training. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, and my guest today is Zofia Rake. Zofia is a Polish climber and anthropologist. 
who is now based in Fontainebleau in France. And they are the author of a new book called Born to Climb. We talked about that quite extensively in this episode. Born to Climb shares the fascinating cultural history of rock and competition climbing from rock climbing pioneers to Olympic athletes. But it's a lot more than a history book. I really enjoyed it, and you'll get a really good sense of what the book is all about in this conversation. But beyond that, I really enjoyed talking to Zofia, and I thought they were so fun and interesting to talk to. Zofia is non-binary and prefers the pronouns they and them, which is why I'm referring to them as them. And they are also autistic, and it was super interesting to hear about what it's like to be autistic and how to navigate our society and social interactions as an autistic person. You would never guess it listening to this conversation. It just blew my mind to hear Zofia's perspective on our conversation. So this to me truly was one of the most interesting conversations I've had on the podcast. I loved it and I really hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, we talked all about the book, and at the very end of this conversation, I'll remind you guys where you can find it and buy it. I highly recommend it. Go check it out. I want to give a quick shout out to Mark and Julie Calhoun. They are the latest patrons who have signed up for the $50 per month tier. Mark and Julie are supporting the Nugget for $50 per month. And I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys are awesome, and I really appreciate the help. I can't express what it means to me to have all you guys supporting the show. All right. Thank you guys for tuning in. And without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with climber, anthropologist, and author, Zofia Rake. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Uh, came back from bouldering literally 20 minutes ago. Oh, great. Uh, wanted to come back an hour earlier, but my mate twisted her ankle. So. Oh, no. Yeah. Classic. And you? Yeah, I'm good. Just kind of getting started with my day. Just had coffee and breakfast and just easing in. It's 10 in the morning here. I forget about the time difference. Yeah. Yeah. seven here so it's nine hours ahead and the really weird thing is that people leave the crag at that time like normally when i go climbing i go in the evening okay but everybody leaves the crag around five six and i'm like well that's when conditions are arriving <laughs> somewhere like right i want it to be colder but right yeah so i felt i felt like sad walking out but like we had to we took so long walking out because my mate was just like hopping on one mm -hmm. leg it was really like a sorry side mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i'm this i'm the same especially with bouldering these days with all the lights and the night sessions and everything that's usually when conditions are good but yeah i think most people still want to just have a very normal day you know like wake up have breakfast go out climbing all day and come home in time for dinner yeah. I mean, we don't do night sessions here anymore because um, we learned that it's like super bad for the animals. Mm. So we basically stop when it gets dark, but it's bright until 10. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. We've got four good hours and like people are leaving. It's like, all right. Did you leave early today for this? Well, a little bit, yes. But then we just left like an extra half an hour earlier because of the ankle. Okay. Yeah, but normally I'd be out now. 
Got you. Okay. Well, well, thank you for being here. <laughs> My pleasure. I'm glad that you chose you're... you over a boulder. So you know that means something. <laughs> Say that again. I said I chose you over a boulder. So that means something. <laughs> that means a lot. <laughs> I really that... want to. Yeah, I must really want to be here. <laughs> well, it's very good to have you here, Sophia. I'm already recording. I'm ready to go. If you are, um, but yeah, thank yep. you so much for being here. Pleasure. Um, and of course, I want to talk all about your book. I have a ton of notes in front of me, and many of them have to do with this book that you wrote um, that I've had a chance to read now. But I want to start by letting people get to know you a little bit. And there's there's like three things in particular that I'm excited to, to ask you about um, from our first conversation. Can you tell me about your house? I, I, you're sitting in your house right now, but <laughs> um, your house in Fontainebleau. I don't know. I have, a, I have a few more notes, but just tell me about your house. I thought that was really fun to hear about. All right. Well, it was built in the second half of the 18th century, and it's a an ex-farm made out of local sandstone. And it is in need of quite a lot of renovating, <laughs> which I'm doing now. And um, just the most recent development was me taking off the toilet yesterday, the toilet that I fixed two years ago. But I realized that Oh, God, like, oh, this is just going to go so random straight away. But I realized that basically the whole bathroom is in the wet room, right? And so you can, like, shower wherever you want. Oh, okay. But then yeah. you cut the hole for the evacuation pipe, water evacuation pipe. And obviously, that's a hole. So the whole point of water, like, the, the whole room being watertight is obliterated so i had to move the <laughs> toilet out and now like it didn't occur to me to seal the hole when i fit, fitted the toilet so i'm doing it now because right under the hole on the other floor like one floor below is our um, electric switchboard oh no, <laughs> so, no. <laughs> i was like wow we're actually in danger of dying here um yeah <laughs> renovations um I had no idea what I was taking on when I agreed to do this, but yes, I am single-handedly renovating this house. <laughs> well, that's yeah, interesting. So, so you're <laughs> you're living there with your partner. Why are you single-handedly doing it? What's up with that? Well, because some, somebody still has to work <laughs> and <laughs> okay. fund the renovation. Okay, so, that's fair, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just how it worked out for us, and it made more sense for him to to stay working and for me to start renovating. But then I took a year of renovation to write the book. So it hasn't gone very well with the reno. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you have you suddenly have a lot more time on your hands. Yes, hence yeah. the toilet. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh my Before gosh. we were living on the edge, like you were taking the sh shower, thinking like, "Am I going to die this time? Am I going to like try all of the electric <laughs> setup?" <laughs> going to so, get a lot safer here. That's great. I'm happy to hear that. So the house is 280 years old. Is that right? Mm -hmm. I love that. I mean, that's just... No, it must be less because it was like second half of the 18th century. So it would be like 240. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that just, I mean, as an American, that just, of course, blows my mind. You know, I grew up in a house that was an old farmhouse and it was built mm. in 1917. And we had a big party when the house turned 100. But I, like, I don't even know... Yeah, I can't imagine that there are more, you know, more than a handful of buildings in this country that are as old as your house so older yeah. yeah i have a really funny story about that because um one of my really really good friends alice is american and we went to switzerland a few years ago together and i was but as we were driving i was pointing the ruins of castles to her on various hilltops and i was like oh look there is a you know a wall there that used to be a castle there is a wall there that used to be a castle and she's like dude they're just like stone walls 
somebody made them 20 years ago to like contain sheep and I'm like no these were castles and like she couldn't wrap her head around it and it was like do you mean castles I'm like you know like 14th century 12th century castles <laughs> didn't sink in I always tease her about it still it's quite fun doesn't it just make you wonder like what is going to be left of now in 700 years you know anything like I are we building anything that's that robust that's going to last that long? It sure doesn't seem like it. Ugly dams. Ugly dams. Yeah, that's a good one. And then I think a lot of um, elect- electronic data, that's that's going to be our heritage. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't have much hope for much, for much more. Well, I'd love to hear, um, and I'm sure people would love to hear more about you and where you came from. And in our first conversation, I was really curious about your accent because I couldn't place it. I didn't know where you were from. And I was really surprised to learn that you're Polish. And when I said that, you're like, oh, I must be masking well. But um, yeah, you grew up in Poland? I did. And probably it's more pronounced today because I spent a couple of days with my mate who's Polish. And normally I hang out with people without a Polish accent. So it does come back more if I speak Polish and then we speak English with Polish accents. It's funny. Um, but yeah, I moved out of Poland when I was about 21. So I actually started climbing there and then moved out and stopped climbing. But yeah, my first climbing experiences were also in Poland. Mm. And how long have you been in Fontainebleau? Well, it really feels like just a short time, but actually it's been nearly four years. It's every time I'm asked this question and I get asked this question a lot because, you know, as soon as people realize I'm not French, they're like, oh, how long have you been living here? And I'm like, a year? No, wait, four years. (laughs) Yeah. So about about four years. That's the COVID time warp, I think. It is. It's bizarre. Plus a book time warp. Mm. For me, I just feel like a year and a half of my life was cut out. And that was just the pandemic and the book. Mm. Very odd. I can imagine. So is bouldering, is that your love as far as climbing goes? Yeah, definitely. Okay. That's like the focus. It's not that I hate other forms of climbing, but I definitely enjoy bouldering the most. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, what has it been like to live in Fontainebleau? That's a that's a dream area for so many climbers, especially boulders. I've heard so many times mm. on this podcast that it's, you know, it there's no place beats it as far as bouldering on rock it's just the best in the world i know it rains a lot i know that the weather can be tricky but yeah how's it been what's it been like to live there and yeah and also half of your time has been isolated in in quarantine and writing a book so um yeah but yeah do you love it um i think i do yeah it's something that i ask myself quite a lot actually because i have always thought that i would be more transient than i am at the moment so it feels weird to be anchored in one place Mm. and for such a long time so I try to like examine how I feel about it and and yeah Fontainebleau really cuts it for me it's um it's very rural despite being super near to Paris I I would actually like it to be more remote but so it happens that the rocks are 100 kilometers from Paris and they are the best rocks for bouldering in the world I don't think anything comes close maybe in terms of um potential rocklands Mm. I think that's about the one place in the world that I I would say compares. I mean, I haven't been to the States, but what I I heard is not that you've got a ton of bouldering in one place. And the amazing thing about Font is just that it's so concentrated. 
it's there's just so much like you could literally spend a lifetime not climbing outside of here and not run out of problems mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. just insane so yeah in in that respect it's it's amazing um style wise like i used to think i preferred boulders that are more like obvious more sort of like throwy and as my friend put it like you i kind of like feeling that i do moves while in fontainebleau you kind of feel like you're creeping up a boulder <laughs> yeah very very yeah. often but it's not like you can't there's basically every style imaginable available here so mm. like if you're after something you'll find it um so yeah in that respect it is it is pretty amazing i did however think i would get much better at climbing <laughs> it's like but you know you move to a like the mecca for for the activity that you love and you think like you know somehow magically it will make you really good at it but like life follows and work follows and it's not that you can just climb so mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> <laughs> i can certainly relate to that i mean i yeah of course like anyone who's stuck in a 9 to 5 you just you just spend all of your time daydreaming about you know, how great your life will be if you ever manage to break free of the grind and strike out on the road and travel to all these amazing places. And it is, mm-hmm. it's amazing. And But you just think like you're, you know, you think you're going to leap up like three French grades or V grades, you know, font, font grades, whatever. And it just doesn't happen. It's just still this slow creep, you know, if anything, if you're going in, if you're going upward at all, that's great because as, as we all know, getting better <laughs> at climbing is really difficult. Um, yeah. Yeah. You've done the 95, haven't you? Yeah, for quite a while. Yeah, when I was in, I lived in Bend, Oregon and was an engineer for about seven years. I had a couple different jobs, wow. but mm-hmm, yeah, most of that time was in a cubicle. And that was daydreaming about climbing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. haven't ever done it. So like, I mean, I did work a lot and I did work and study at the same time, but I never had the classic 95 job. Mm. So I can't even imagine. Like, <laughs> I think I just, <laughs> no, sorry, I'm lying. For six months, I managed to do that. Okay. A Chamonix out of all places. So it was good. But I quit because I was like, well, I'm, I'm in Chamonix and I can't even go climbing because I'm in 95. <laughs> so like, what's the point? <laughs> so, yeah. But then, you know, you, you end up freelancing and doing stuff for yourself. And then there is so much work. Mm. So, yeah. That's a good, that's an encouraging message, I think, for a lot of people listening to this, because it sure feels scary. You know, like I, I don't know, I, I don't think I'm. I don't think I felt like I especially needed the security of a of a job, but still, like it it feels like a big scary leap to strike out on your own and try to find your own work. Um, and just the way our mm. I think the way our education system works, especially here in the states, like you're just kind of you have to commit to a track pretty early on before you really have any life experience and know what you want in life. Wow! And then you just feel kind of stuck you know or at least a lot of us do like you feel like right i chose this thing i've got to make the best of it you know um it's i think the hardest part for me in transitioning my lifestyle was just like envisioning that i could you know mm. and and believing that i could because i thought i was just an engineer but and having a life. direction oh i see yeah but having a direction seems like something quite nice actually because you know I've, i i say I'd say that I always felt the opposite like I lacked a direction so mm. knowing from early on like that's that's why I've got um like such a fascination with people who start something at a very early age like professional athletes or professional musicians because you start sort of 
devoting yourself fully to your chosen career path, what, six, eight? And I just find that so, I mean, you know, it must have so many downsides and and so much, you know, so much basically is at stake, but it fascinates me to be like so focused. And I, I never had that. And I always kind of dreamt about that mm, kind of thing. Me too. Yeah, I can relate to that. What would that be for you? Would it be climbing? Would it be writing? Would it be some combination? Um, I mean, I think I would have liked to get a shot at being an athlete from an early age um, to see how that would go. But I guess that's probably everybody who started climbing as an adult thinks like, oh, I wish I started when I was five. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, my mom is a professional musician and she started playing the piano at six. Oh, wow. And that's what she does. And she always says like, I never had a choice, but for me, that's, I, I should like sort of like learn from her experience. But to me, there is still something very almost romantic and magical about mm. like just having this one path and one uh, goal that you're fully committed to. It's just, obviously if it doesn't go the right way, you're a bit screwed, but <laughs> at least nice to try. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely relate to that. I think um, I'm someone who gets really who can very easily overwhelm myself thinking about all the options in life. Mm, and there's something definitely. really freeing, I think, about just feeling like you're you're meant to do this one thing and you're you're put here for this one purpose. So yeah. yeah. I kind of would say I could feel like that with writing. It's just that writing is hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like, you know, like I had a few periods in my life when I was able just to train and climb very short periods but that felt like you're just in the moment you're doing it you get tired you sleep you get up you do it again but with writing you kind of think like shit I need to stop doing this this is driving me mad mm. <laughs> so yeah it's unfortunately not that all-encompassing for me yeah I, that was something I have on my, we can just dive into this. That's something I had on my list for later, but um, yeah, the like you would think, or I would think I'm, I'm someone, I'm planning to write a book at some point, you know, doing this whole project. I'd love to distill a lot of these insights I've learned from people and this amazing mentorship from all these conversations and put it into a book, like package it in a way that's really uh, concise and and useful that people can refer back to. And I haven't done it because it feels like such a big undertaking and it's enough to stay on top of this and continue to connect with people like you and to pursue my own climbing. And I, you know, I, <laughs> I like to think that I'll be able to balance that whenever I choose to take that on. I'll be able to work on it some percentage of the week or the day and still train and still do the podcast, still have friends, etc. But I haven't. I haven't heard from many writers who seem to be able to balance it. It really seems like it's this full immersion process of just diving in, putting your head down and and just kind of disappearing from life until you, you come out on the other side of it. And then you have this book that you wrote. Um, did it feel like that to you? 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I thought exactly, as you said, that I will maintain some sort of balance between work and which would be writing and the rest of life. And that sort of idea was out of question very, very soon when I realized that I'm just writing all day long. 
And then all night long, I'm thinking about it. And when I walk the dog, I'm actually writing in my head. And when I'm in the shower, I'm actually writing in my head. Um, yeah, so I stopped all renovations and I stopped training and I just climbed a little bit and was like, I mean, I just wasn't with it. I was always thinking I should be at my computer. I should be typing away. Like Also because of the deadline, I suppose. Like I had a deadline. I had a deadline with my publisher and I'm a slow writer because um, I write in a second language. So mm. it is a slow process. I don't know how it would be if like, if the same book was written by the same person, but in their first language, would it be much faster than what it took me? I feel like yes, mm. but certainly 12 months, I was pretty much only focused on the book and, and then a few months on either side of that period. So that was quite intense. And um definitely took its toll on my climbing yeah <laughs> it's quite it's quite shocking like <laughs> I just feel like I'm a decade older oh. it's insane like I mean I'm, I'm starting to realize that I think I can like bounce back or whatever but at first I was like oh my god it's just not bending my fingers are not closing my arm is not bending like what's happening <laughs> it's a bit terrifying <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I actually know that feeling. Um, it does come back. You will be, you'll be back. You'll be back to where you were climbing before and beyond. I'm sure of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate your um, confidence in me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, it's a, it's a matter of motivation for sure. And um, it's actually, motivation is something that I've been thinking about loads recently because like for the longest time in my life, I was motivated by quite negative sort of self-talk and for some inexplicable reason over the course of writing the book that has completely disappeared at least in terms of climbing so now you know I go out there and I don't have this thought of like if I don't climb this block I'm shit mm. and I'm just asking myself how can one have enough positive motivation for it to be as impactful as negative motivation just like I'm really enjoying this I'm gonna do it really hard and like go full on it's really hard and I, I, I don't think I have found that switch yet exactly because you know I can enjoy myself on circuits I can enjoy myself on on easy blocks that don't require that much effort and you know having a hard project that you train for like mad that you eat certain foods for and you don't eat other foods for and that you sleep more and so you don't see people it's just all like it's so much and I'm searching for that drive at the moment. It's not being back after the book. Mm. Yeah, that's such an interesting idea. I love that. And it's it's really interesting to me because I actually connected to you through Martin Keller. And mm. what you're saying right now reminds me a lot of the conversation I had with him. And that was a huge shift that he had from just this very negative dominated self-talk and just chastising, like when he fell off a boulder, just berating himself to the point where his wife was wearing earplugs and he has told me that turning that around and, and being more loving to himself and being more positive has had a profound shift. Like the, I, I think he credits that for his success in the last few years and reaching yeah. new personal best, which is, which is amazing. But yeah, it, it is another question. Like, where do you find that within yourself and where does that come from? And if you don't feel it right now, like, does that mean it's gone or will it, will it show up again? Yeah. It also makes me a little worried because it kind of looks like perhaps I don't love it enough. 
Do you know what I mean? Because like, or maybe I'm lazy. Maybe I don't love effort enough. It's all of those questions that you're starting to ask about yourself, because if you're motivated by something negative, then you're willing to do anything, right? But then if you love bouldering, it doesn't mean, or whatever other kind of sporting activity or really anything, it doesn't mean that you have to push yourself to your absolute max. You can just enjoy it and have a good time. And then is that worth less than pushing myself loads? Do I want to push myself loads? Do I find there's something that I don't find if I don't? Actually, I definitely find there's something I don't find when I don't push myself. So I better bloody find that switch. (sighs) (laughs) It's, It's a fascinating cycle, isn't it? You know, you fall in love with climbing, you enjoy it so much. And that's for most of us, at least that's where it starts. And that's what leads us to the drive and the desire to challenge ourselves and do harder things. And then I relate to that, what you just said. Like I have reached a point where I now often feel guilty if I'm just enjoying it, you know, if I'm not, Mm -hmm. like it's kind of messed up, you know, like if you kind of zoom out and look at that and think about it, it's like, how did I get here? And (laughs) I definitely got that enjoyment back when I was writing the book because then climbing was my break from the book. So I wasn't expecting to perform. Mm. I was like, okay, I've got two hours before I have to sleep. I'm going to go and do a few easy blocks. And then I was like, okay, I relaxed. I climbed the block. The nature is lovely around me. The blocks are beautiful. All is good. Go home. So I found through that, this like chill that I haven't had in years in my climbing. Mm. But at the same time, it means like, yeah, like why would I push myself? I'm having a chill time. Lovely boulder, lovely weather, whatever. And and it kind of feels wrong to a degree to just not push it. Mm. But it's such hard work to push it, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, I think I'm um, learning that it doesn't have to be one or the other. You know, it can ebb and it can flow and it can be, we can have seasons of, of both. And um, I, I think I've learned to trust, to trust that it does come back, that drive and that hunger yeah. does come back. And it doesn't really work to force it. That's why I'm not forcing it, it now. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I don't remember who it was, but somebody told me, oh, actually, I know, it was my really good friend who lives here also moved from the uk here and he's one of those talented people that just bolderate be without trying all that hard but you know nonetheless there were times in his life when he had to push it and he told me even though he's much younger than me and like might not have like more life experience but he does have more climbing experience and he was like don't push it because if you push it like against your will you will spoil it for yourself Mm. and then like there will be bad vibes there will be bad feelings and it's just not going to bring any pro- like positive effect, and and I think, I think I I, I would agree with him because it's better to wait for it to come back naturally, I suppose. Mm. I love it. Let's dive into the book. I'd love to hear why you decided to write a book in general, and then why this book specifically. Mm, why this book specifically? Because I thought that the climbing community as it's growing at the moment kind of needed it and it sounds like all self-important but I don't know if I managed to succeed in delivering what I thought was necessary but I think a book that sort of portrays the heritage of climbing and where it came from and how it developed and basically it's lineage lineage that's the lineage that's how you say it yeah um it's necessary because we're at a risk of losing it mm. as you know, as climbing is growing and people are experiencing it in completely new ways that, that 
just you know just through climbing walls and and not really connected to the old ways we're risking a disconnect and i just wanted to create something that would help bridge this gap and and if somebody feels that disconnect they can they can fix it with the book i suppose i don't know mm-hmm. that was i guess the idea i love it and i wonder if you could give our listeners a glimpse at how the book is laid out in some of the stories in the book because it's a history of climbing but it's a really unique history of climbing it's not just this chronology of the events that that unfolded it's just these really cool little snapshots that bounce around the world Um, and I really like how you organized it but yeah can you give people that haven't seen it haven't looked at it just a glimpse into some of the different stories and how you thought about putting that longer story together Yeah, so my starting point was actually climbing as it is today. And I wanted to look at it from, like, imagine that I just came to it now and saw it as it is today, and then do a deep dive into trying to figure out why and how it became what it is. And to do that, I felt like, well, first you need history, but then also you need the experiences of people who are part of the community today and part of the community in the sense that perhaps they do more than just going to the gym once a week in the sense that like their lives revolve around climbing because I feel like it's the core that kind of carries forth how how the ethics of the sport and how the how the sort of whole atmosphere of it um, perpetuates itself so I wanted to show those two sides like the contemporary community but not necessarily the way it's just portrayed by like the Olympic channel and then a deep dive into history. So I have a linear history that's chopped up with little stories that are stories of contemporary climbing, which happen to be told from my perspective, because that's what I experience and that's what I can describe best. I think, I mean, there is that saying that all writers write about themselves. So I just thought like, sod it I'm not going to pretend I'm not doing it and it's a bit scary and it's a bit um like it feels like oh my god I'm, I'm writing about myself so like it's really cringy but I, don't, I just did it and I I actually heard from like some early readers of the book that they could like connect with those personal stories mm. and and feel like some relevance there that maybe wouldn't be there if they were only reading a history book so I wanted to have those two facets. Facets have something quite personal and at the same time mix it up with those like cultural and, and historical references. So it's a bit of a mix up. Mm-hmm. I love it. I think you did an amazing job of that. And I'm, I mean, I Thank you. am one of those people. I resonated and connected with your stories and it's, I don't know, I, I don't, I like history. I'm very interested in history, but I have a hard time reading history because of its density. Mm. But I think the way that you split it up was just such a great reminder that this was a real human out there doing it, climbing and experiencing yeah. it and, and wanting to share. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I, I love how you put that together. Um, that was very kind. How, yeah. yeah. I With mean, the you, historical bits. I just wanted to put in here because like a lot of people when they hear like, oh, history, like it was really my ambition not to make it a chronicle. So it is possible and it is definitely true that there's going to be things that are not in the book. There's going to be, you know, breakthroughs and, and important characters that could be there, but are not there. But it was more important for me to create a narrative that's readable than to make a chronicle. 
Mm-hmm. And also the narrative is like the narrative of sort of the iconography and mythology of climbing as I know it. So it might be different for somebody else. Mm. I love that. Yeah, it's almost it's in a way it almost reads like a collection of short stories that are put in an order that makes a lot of sense. You know, like this okay. this snapshot in time in this place in the world. This is what climbing looked like and how it evolved and what came out of that. And then we bounce over here to this next chapter. And then there's, you know, another story from you in, in your personal climbing. I wanted to ask how you did your research for it because it's so broad. I actually recognized a lot of the references you you pulled from other memoirs and autobiographies and things like that mm. um, from some of the contemporary modern um, contemporary climbing characters that have been on this podcast, for instance. Like you referenced, you had a great chapter about Ben Moon and Jerry Moffat, and uh, yeah. I recognized some of the quotes from both of their books. But yeah, yeah, how how did you do your research and how did you decide which stories or snapshots in time to try to capture for the book? So as you said, like loads of the research was just reading all of the material that's out there already. So uh, for example, I would read everything there is available on Ben Moon and then just ask myself, do I need to speak to him? Because what I wanted to a degree, that's that's the thing, like it's not necessarily a story as the character that I'm talking about would tell it. It's the story of how it looked like. Mm. Therefore, using sources makes sense because it's not like, you know, there are things that in climbing even might be controversial or somebody saw things uh, one way, somebody saw them the other way, like, you know, with the story of um, Indian face in the UK. And you kind of don't want to have the point of view of one person saying this is how I experienced it but I wanted to present the um how to say it like the the effect it had on the climbing community the impact it had and that is done not through the actual experience of the person who's a character but through how it looked like so in that sense it's not that the book tells any sort of objective truth Mm. you know I think if if you want, well, or subjective truth, I suppose, if you want that, you need to read like direct interviews with people. Um, and I did a lot of that, but then I was trying to like mediate it all. And um, I did quite a lot of like sociological, anthropological reading on sociology of sport, on um, mass spectacle, on the media and sports. Um, that's also my background academically. So I kind of knew where to search even though I might have not remembered exactly what was there that I wanted to put in. I knew, okay, I read this article um, or, you know, this academic reader had this or that. And then I could go back quite extensively to to make the book happen. And most of the references are at the back of the books because I thought that it was very important that it's very clear that it is a retelling of stories. You know, there is there is very little there that's sort of like, completely original content that would be for example the chapter about climbing competitions in the Soviet Union because I thought that story was important for the development of the sport and for how it arrived where it is today but there weren't any sources about that in English Mm. Um, so I looked at some sources in Russian very briefly and then just decided to reach out to Zhenia Kazbekova, who kind, kindly put me in touch with her grandparents. And then we did an interview and, um, yeah, 
that was super nice of them and super useful. I spoke to John Gill in person as well, uh, as in in person over, you know, the internet. Um, I spoke to John Gill because like uh, he did a lot of research into bouldering, which I found super interesting. And actually, I think it was looking at John Gill's website. He's got this really old website, which which um, looks like somebody just wrote it in HTML. It's probably what happened. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And, and I remember seeing that like, quite a few years ago and thinking, wow, there's like so much historical depth to this thing that I never thought about or I thought about, but not like consciously. And that inspired me sort of to, to think about climbing in historical and cultural context more than I used to. I think I probably saw John's website even before I started writing my master's thesis, which was also on climbing. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> well, I, that, no, you're, this is great. Yeah, and I, and I can always ask more. Um, that's so interesting. I'll have to look at John's website. I'm, I'm, that makes me very curious. Um, I have a question about him and, and more of your research, but I have to double click on something that you just said. What, what was your master's about? What did you do your master's on in school? Mm, so my, the, the title of my thesis was... Um, climbing women and niche media beyond alternative femininity and I actually went to uni to do my master's in anthropology of media with the idea of writing about uh, the media representation of the Japanese tsunami because my undergrad was in Japanese um, linguistics and culture and I felt that I wanted to continue on that path but it, it had like burned out somewhere along the way and climbing was like my raging passion at the time so I went to my supervisor and was like can I swap uh, Japanese media for climbing media and I thought she's gonna be like no way I was like oh yes yes I did football when I was young and your age you know she, she was she's she's, a, she's an amazing professor she's still at um SARS University of London but she she walks with a stick Dr. Dolores Martinez I think and Dr. Dolores walks with the stick and, and it's just this very forceful character. And I would never have seen her like playing football, but that was her answer. Like she was like immediately like passionate about athletics and, <laughs> and like, yeah, got all psyched for my thesis. So, so it was possible. And it was uh, sort of the first deep dive I did into climbing culture, I mm. guess, contemporary, very much contemporary. Fascinating. Okay. I, I do want to, Thank you for sharing that. I'd, I'd love to circle back to that. Um, I want to ask you this. So as, you know, having this... Uh, Go ahead. Did you I, was just, I just wanted to say that it's super dated now because it's it's insane, but it was written in 2014. So seven, eight years ago. And so much has changed in the climbing community and in the climbing media that it's like, now it's a historical reference. <laughs> it's bizarre. Yeah, give me some examples of that. Like, what were you writing about at the time that felt important that's outdated now or, or feels dated now? It's more so the framework itself. So I was very much hung up on the gender binary uh, in the way that, you know, it's it's traditionally portrayed. And even though, like, the title itself is, like, beyond traditional femininities, I was actually so bound up in that um, in that dichotomy that... I don't feel like the thesis goes beyond the the binary. And then a lot of it was about female climbers um, trying to sort of like manage being both in the social role of being a female and being a climber. 
and it didn't liberate them from their societal gender role. Do you know what I mean? Like it was just stuck within a within a framework that now I see as outdated. Even though it was trying to break out of it, it was mm-hmm. still just like circular almost. It's it's very interesting for me to to look back at it and just not understand how was it that I didn't see it. But interestingly enough, like it wasn't even critiqued in that sense by any of the professors who read it. It was received really well and nobody just said like, hey, you actually didn't dig deep enough. You didn't dismantle the things that you're trying to dismantle. I would love to just go forward on this tangent. I I think this is very interesting, actually. Um, And I wanted to ask you about this because Martin reached out to me, Martin Keller. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was the one that reached out and, and told me to interview you, basically. He had wonderful things to say. And I just read his message again this morning and, you know, he, he said, you know, Zofia's amazing. She's awesome. She does this like women's festival thing in Fontainebleau and has done so much for women in climbing. And I had, I remember I'd read that and I looked at your Instagram and immediately saw that you identify as non-binary and use they, yeah. them pronouns. So that just made me really curious um, how you, because obviously those things can, can coexist. Like you can identify as non-binary and still want to help empower women in the outdoor space and in climbing. But I just wonder how you think about that and, and you know, what kind of space that holds for you at this point in time, like you know, yeah. how that feels important and how you relate that to your own gender, gender identity. I mean, it's actually kind of quite weird because um, I never felt fully aligned with the idea of my own womanhood. So therefore like having a women's bouldering festival that was founded by me, always felt a bit odd but at the same time it felt important it felt needed and you know the festival is um in its fifth year this year so there is interest and it it actually seems to to bring something to to people who who just choose to participate but um I do feel a little bit odd sometimes that I don't run something like I don't know a queer climbing festival non-binary climbing festival I don't know um but it just seems to me that um like the gender divide is into the binary is so much more prevalent that like addressing that and you know like feminism needs to be inclusive so to me a women's bouldering festival by definition has to be inclusive it can't be just like a women's bouldering festival and we actually don't care about other genders not to even mention people who have like other um like disadvantages in life who have who, who lack other privileges like I get asked quite a lot by people who are queer, who are genderqueer, like, oh, is it festival? Is this festival for me? Because like, you know, I'm trans or I'm queer and, and I don't know if I belong there. And I'm like, well, if you share our like ethos of diversity that like climbing should be really for everybody. And if you're psyched on, on protecting Fontainebleau because env- environmentalism is another big part of the festival, like this event is for you. And it's called the Women's Bouldering Festival because if you don't call a festival something for women, if it's climbing, not something that's traditionally associated with femininity, you're going to end up with 80% blokes. Like that's the reality. <laughs> Outdoor climbing, you're going right. to say climbing festival, it's going to be 80% blokes. So, you know, you call it a women's climbing festival, you flip the, the gender sort of ratio and, and balance. Mm. And um, I think with time, there will be events that are dedicated to people who, like myself, are genderqueer. And I know there already are initiatives like that, uh, but 
at the moment, the way we solve the sort of diversity question is that we just try to cater for everybody and not in a sense that they would feel like a postscriptum, like, oh, by the way, non-binary folks are also welcome. Because like, you know, the director is queer. I'm the director, I'm queer. <laughs> like, um, It's weird, it's weird. I mean, I, I personally just don't get how people can be like, yeah, I'm a woman or I'm a man. I'm, I'm just a person who doesn't perceive gender. So to me, it's like a little bit of a of a weird idea. But um, but I do accept the fact that people find themselves playing one of these roles and therefore the festival is for women. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, that's great. I actually, thank you for all of that. I, I love how you just described that. Um, I actually have a Instagram post pulled up from you that I want to read and I don't even have a question about it. I just really liked okay. it and I want to read it and share it for people. Uh, this is your most recent one. You posted this two days okay. ago. And it's a photo of you sitting in some tall grass with a flower in your hair. You said, here's my best. Yeah, that's right behind the house. Oh, like, that's great. Literally 200 meters. Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. On a dog walk. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You wrote, here's my best Frida Kahlo Im impression. And Frida Kahlo, for people listening, was a Mexican painter and specializing in portraits. Um, you wrote... And a reminder, you can be a femme and still be a them. Heard that somewhere and it struck a chord as a great tagline for all those who choose to present in ways that don't fit the societal expectations of their gender. Recently, I'm fully giving in to my love of summery, slightly old style dresses and getting over the guilt of not walking around with a non-binary label plastered onto my forehead. Uh, depending on my mood, depending on the occasion, I love presenting masculine, feminine, androgynous, and most often simply presenting without thinking which gender label it falls under. It doesn't change who I am, a queer human completely non-attached to any, to any gender identity, which I simply do not experience. Interestingly, a trait more common on the autism spectrum than with neurotypical population. So, yeah, I just, I loved how you captured all of that. Um, really great writing. And uh, it was just super interesting. I have a problem with posts like that because they just like, come, they just, things like that always float at the top of my head. And then I write something and I'm like, oh my God, I'm writing the same crap over and over again. Like people must be just like over it. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, no, there's surely somebody who still needs it. So I'll just put it out there. Yeah. But like, like, I don't know why this is the kind of stuff that just like, if I put my fingers to the keyboard, it just comes out and I'm like, oh, this again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's great. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, there's always new people coming in and discovering you for the first time. And, you know, we, we're we just exposed to so much all the time. I think reading the same ideas captured slightly differently in slightly different language um, mm. over and over again, I think is really helpful. It really helps these understandings sink in. And, and this, like, that's a great glimpse through your lens, you know, into your life and your world. And um I think that's really valuable. So I'd say keep doing it. Keep sharing that stuff. Thank you. The idea is that I just kind of feel like there shouldn't be one recipe for how to be a human and it should be completely up to you, but it's not. And although I feel like in my bubble that I am totally free to be who I am and it feels like a very random, rare and surprising intrusion if I ever experience any sort of even surprised at who I am because everybody like in my surrounding is just like, yeah, whatever, like you do you. 
Um, but I know that's not how everybody experiences it. And so the idea is that maybe somehow, somewhere there is a person who will feel better for reading it or will learn something from it. But I don't know. It's, it's a weird compulsion to share, which I question a lot. And sometimes I ask myself, well, if I didn't write a book, would I still even have Instagram? Because like, obviously I, I try to use it to let people know about the book at the moment. And um, I don't know. But since I don't have the option of not having it as a first time author, I just I just keep doing it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, you just said something interesting, like maybe if it helps someone out there, I guarantee you that it that it's helping many people out there. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, though. I, I totally do. Um, but I think any time someone shows up in the world and shares their really real authentic experience and it's different from mine it's different from someone else's i mean i th i think that's such a powerful thing it just helps us crack open and helps us you know really internalize exactly what you just said that there's no one recipe for how to be a human being and i think the more times we learn that lesson and the deeper that gets into us i, I think that solves i think that has the potential and the power to solve so many societal problems that we have because we're so good as as humans at dividing people into us and them and putting people in categories and that creates so much division and i i think this is a really powerful antidote to that sharing personal stories and i just yeah i, I think it's awesome so thanks for doing it cool thank you that's yeah. that's encouraging i suppose <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, i know we're getting far away from the book but i want to i want to talk about one line from your post there and relate it to the first conversation we had, because it just it just blew my mind to have this conversation with you. And I, I just, it's happening again right now. But the last thing I read there, um, interestingly, a more common trait on the autism spectrum than with the neurotypical population. Yeah. So that's another thing I discovered right away when I looked at your Instagram is that you're autistic. And in our first conversation, I mean, people listening to this, like you are so... Um, Talkative. <laughs> Fun and gregarious and easy to talk to. And it just, this feels like such a natural conversation and I'm enjoying it so much. And something that you said in our first conversation is that you're basically, you feel like you're acting when you're doing this. Yeah. Like this sort of interaction, this banter, this chatting feels completely unnatural to you. And you know what it should look like and you're just yeah. acting. And I know you're doing it again and it's blowing my mind again because I hear <laughs> oh, so it just feels it's completely like natural to me. That's amazing. Like there is this formula in my head, like, okay, do I laugh now? Do I interrupt now? Do I stop talking it? Like Wow. And it's exhausting. Like it's rewarding. It's worth it. It means that I am a part of the society and I have meaningful relationships and relationships that I like, you know, with with people that just like you can meet on the street, on the street and have a and have a conversation with. But it's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel... I, I've... Means, like a, a lot of your like basically operational memory is constantly occupied. Wow. Yeah. Executing this conversation in like a formulaic way. Yeah. That's so interesting to me. And I know that um, you are someone who likes structure and you like to get to the point. And I know I've been all over the place in this conversation. I've been very aware of that, but I think you're sharing so many interesting and helpful things. I just, I just think this is 
Great. Um, yeah, but it's stressing me out because it's so <laughs> random and I'm saying things that are like not too planned. So I'm like, oh God, I said this. Is it like, is it okay now? Like, <laughs> well, I can assure you, you're doing an amazing job and you're also the best actor I've ever met. That's just incredible. Can Can you expand on that? Like, what is that, what is that process? What does that feel like? I always ask myself because like, there, there is a this thing that uh, people who are socialized as female, especially, are very much under diagnosed with autism, um, because usually they are so well trained at um, presenting in a certain role. So I always ask myself, would I be able to go to a medical professional, to a psychiatrist, and just basically act out any disorder? Because <laughs> wow. it kind of feels like that. And and my mate is now just finishing her degree in psychology. And she's like, no, like, you know, we train in this to, to be able to see through this. And I'm like, yes, and you're autistic and you went undiagnosed until 32. He's like, hmm. So like, we've got this ongoing conversation of trying to figure out whether... Yeah, like, like you basically have to choose to be yourself to like very consciously choose and then unmask. And it's not easy. Like I realized that the only practically the only times when I'm fully like the way I am when I'm alone is probably only with my mother, which is bizarre. Mm. And funnily enough, I, my mom has never been diagnosed, but I am like in my heart, a hundred percent certain she's autistic. Okay. So yeah, even with my partner that I've been with for 10 years, like I try to be non-filtered, but I can't. I mean, we all we are all filtered because, you know, like um the way we present is is um it's a constant like like I don't know how to put it. I haven't um actually thought about this for a very long time, but there is this social theory that shows how we create ourselves through various aspects of our personality and we constantly like create and represent this image of who we want to be and people do that basically without thinking yeah but for an autistic person because we don't take societal norms and societal expectations for granted they just don't sink in in the same way Mm. so everything is a question everything is um and everything is an open-ended question and very often if you don't realize that there is a question that's when things go wrong and autistic people say things that shouldn't be said (laughs) it happens a lot i've seen it so much with so many of my friends it's (laughs) it's hilarious but you know it leads to a lot of problems at work it leads to a lot of problems in education so yeah (laughs) um can you describe what you're like with your mom? I find that very interesting. Like what is what is Zofia or on your own? What is Zofia on her own or with your mom like compared to this conversation? Wow. Um I mean, there is definitely a lot of very unstructured and random movement. Um okay. oh, I'm doing it now. Sorry. <laughs> I just saw a glimpse of myself on the monitor and I was like, oh, what am I doing? Right. Put your hands down. Um <laughs> and (laughs) yeah it's it's hard like it's we might go on you know start making a sound that we like and we start repeating the sound and like going on onto this weird like trip of remaking a sound that we're hearing and it's I guess it's very much childlike I almost feel like being autistic is like 
not having the social filter that comes with adulthood. Mm. That might be wrong, but that's how it feels to me at the moment or recently. I have a note in front of me that says inside there is a five-year-old. Is that what you meant by that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. And I've got a guest at the moment staying in my house who is also autistic. And uh, she said to me, because I said to her like, oh, you know, like um, I, I just, when I walk my dog, I keep like moving and dancing. And she's like, yeah, I do that too. And and I know other people don't do it. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And I like wonder why, why do they stop themselves? And we're like genuinely not sure whether other people who are neurotypical just don't feel the compulsion to do it so they don't do it because it wouldn't be nice or they're stopping themselves so maybe you can tell me like do you feel like but but then would you even know whether you're being sort of put in that box that says do not dance in public when you're walking your dog (laughs) or is it genuinely the way you are you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I do know what you mean. I think it's a great question. I don't have a dog, so I'm probably not the best person to ask. But um, well, you can do it without a dog, right? I think I think my <laughs> my <laughs> my gut feeling hearing you ask that is that it's a mix of both. Like I certainly don't feel a compulsion to dance very often in the way that you're describing. Yeah. I think like when I like I go on a lot of walks. I just you know go walk around yeah. town and stuff and get my steps in whatever listen to music, you know, listen to podcasts, whatever. And, and, uh, sometimes I do, like if I'm listening to a song and it's like hitting right in that moment, then I'm like dancing down the street. And sometimes I feel like I want to do that. And I hold that in because of how it's going to be perceived by other people. You know, if I'm walking, like I live right down the street from a hospital and I see nurses coming and going on their smoke breaks and things. And I definitely check that if I'm feeling that compulsion as I'm walking past, Mm. you know, a a nurse on her break, I might reel that in a little bit or I might not and just like try to make her laugh or him laugh or whoever. So it's probably a mix of both. I doubt that I have that compulsion as often as you do, but I bet I mask it. But also the the funny thing is that like I call it dancing and I always felt like, oh, I'm a very dancey person, but actually it's actually called stimming, stimulating. So what autistic people do, it's for sensory regulation. You do things with your body, you do things with um, other objects that you might fidget a pen or or play with a sensory toy. So it's actually like other people refer to uh, other people on the autistic spectrum or or health professionals refer to it as stimming. But for me, it always felt like dancing. So I call it dancing, but maybe it doesn't look like dancing. Maybe it just looks like a weird neurodiverse person stimming. Um, It's fine. It feels like dancing. So it's good. It's all good. (laughs) (laughs) When were you diagnosed with autism? I was 31. So five years ago. 31. Wow. Yeah. Five years ago. Okay. It's pretty weird to think how much your life could be easier and different if people had realized earlier. I was about to ask about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. How did that understanding change your life experience? Um, I stopped po- I stopped forcing myself to things that I would normally force myself to and then pay for it in just really bad mental health afterwards. Mm. So I just acknowledged that I can't do social situations with a certain intensity. Like, so I can't repeat it a few days in a row. Um, I kind of stopped asking for myself to try and have a job in an office where I sit with other people. I tried that and it was horrible. I would go out to the, like out of the office space and into the bathroom cubicle and just like 
punch the wall with my hands to be like, I can't be here. I can't be here. I need mm. to be home. And I had those like aggressive feelings toward my coworkers. And I felt like, oh, I'm a bad person. And now I'm just like, no, you're not a bad person. You just can't stand 10 people typing around you. And that's fine. Because wow. that's just yeah. um, like, you know, the sound of people doing things. Oh God, the sound of people chewing things in the <laughs> office. Jesus. Um, so you just, you just basically give yourself permission to be who you are. And give yourself space to recover and to grow in a, in a way that is necessary for you, as opposed to trying to do what other people are doing. Because mm. like the majority of the population, they are neurotypical. And you see people doing all these things and having a great time. And you want to have a great time. And so you think if you do things like they do, you will have a great time. But then you feel crap and you don't know why. And you're just like, what's wrong with me? Am I broken? Like, and you kind of don't see the causality of like, okay, I did this. So for example, I spent too much time at a party. I didn't leave when the music started overstimulating me. Now I feel shit. You're just like, I saw people. Now I feel shit. I'm broken. Mm. Um, wow. But you just start, you basically learn about how you function. And, and it's just so much easier. Yeah. So much easier. It's fascinating. I I can, um, I think I can imagine it, you know, it just, I think I experienced just like some small percentage of, of what you're describing, just being an introverted person, because I yeah. think we live in a society still, it's, it's changing, but I think we still, maybe we highlight extroversion, you know, or, or we elevate extroversion, you know, like being out, being social, doing lots of fun things. Maybe that's just what we're yeah. exposed to. We see a lot of the, um, the, we see a lot of the end product of that on Instagram, people taking photos of them doing fun things, being out and meeting people yeah. and things. And I, uh, I've always felt introverted. I've always felt like I have to really guard my own energy and carve out time to be alone and to recharge, or maybe I can be with one close person who I feel really calm and restful with but if yeah. i don't guard that if i don't protect that then i kind of like retreat and shut down while i'm with people and that doesn't feel good and then i feel like there's something wrong with me so yeah that's really interesting i'm sure that's just like a a fraction of what you're describing and, and how you're experiencing it but it's super interesting that you like had that insight into how you are because like i had the opposite and most of my life i felt like oh i'm an extrovert because like i talk so much and then I realized, well, I talk so much because I don't really know what to do when I meet somebody. So like, it's this thing that my mom describes as telling your li life story to the person that you meet in the elevator. <laughs> and that's literally what myself or my mom would do. Wow. Like, now I really check myself and try not to do it. But last time, last time I was in Warsaw, I saw my mom and she literally like got home and it was like, oh God, I just got out of the elevator. And I told this guy all of these things and this space of like those five stories that we went and I'm like mom what did you do it was like I don't know but I feel horrible <laughs> oh, and, man. and you just do it because it's like this compulsion of I need to feel the silence I don't know what to do with it and so like I'm quite impressed that you knew that you need your space and your like quiet time and because as you said this is not something that the society promotes so to speak or gives points for, we are given mm. points for being seen and being loud. And, you know, even, even Instagram, like I wrote a book, but I have to have a 
Instagram account because otherwise nobody will know about the book. Um, like it's expected of us to advertise ourselves and it's weird in every sense, whether it's for work or for just social situations. It's yeah, it's odd. Mm. Yeah. Well, I guess I, I should have expanded a little bit more. I don't, I, I guess I relate to you because I don't think I always did understand that about myself. You know, I'm 32 now okay. I'm about to turn 33. And I think for, I think for much of my early adult life, I felt other than, or I felt like a misfit because I, like I wanted to have as much energy to be spontaneous and playful as a lot of my friends mm -hmm. and go out and do things. And it just wasn't me. And I always felt kind of guilty about that, you know? Yeah. And life's a lot better now that I just understand that that's the way that I am and that's okay. And, and it, I'm a lot happier and I show, I'm able to show up a lot better in the world by honoring that and recharging mm -hmm. when I need to versus trying to force myself to do things that, you know, that are, that are really just expectations I'm feeling from other people or creating for myself because they probably don't even care. It's just me telling myself this story of, you know. How you should be. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. I think having that understanding and also having the, like, um, making it something that's seen is just good for people to to be able to recognize, oh, maybe I'm this way. Because, like, the way I see neurodiversity, I mean, there are loads of, you know, autistic people or people who are, have ADHD or other, like, neurodiversities who need loads and loads of assistance. And obviously, these people can be really quite disabled. Um, but even though like, um, autism or ADHD are disabilities, like, I think to a large degree, they're disabilities because the society tells you that you have to have certain abilities, which from my perspective are not necessary. Like, mm. why is it required of me to be able to, 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 to spend time with so many people at the same time or, why do we perceive people who are nonverbal as being less than? Because like there are so many autistic people who are nonverbal, but they like write amazingly. And so why do we think that they are disabled by the, you know, by the fact that they don't use their speech? Like, why is it obligatory? Like, I just, yeah, I just find it, again, it's like this rigidity in what is the right recipe for being a human. Mm. And I think it's, again, something that I would like to see loosening up. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Petzl. I have been using Petzl harnesses, quick draws, and belay devices for more than a decade. I love this company and their products. And today I want to talk about helmets. One of the things we love about climbing is the unknown. Is that hold going to be a jug or a sloper? Am I too pumped? Am I good enough to climb this route? We live for the unexpected. But no one expects to hit their head while climbing. Impacts to the front, side, or rear of the head happen when we least expect it. A foot slips, your rope snags on a rock, and you find yourself somewhere you don't want to be. That's why Petzl goes above and beyond UIAA and CE helmet standards to give you an extra level of protection on the top and side of their helmets. Top and side protection comes standard in their entire lineup of helmets, so whether you're in the mountains or at the crag, you can experience the difference with Petzl. You can learn more and shop for Petzl helmets at your local climbing shop or go to Petzl 
petzelhelmets.com. Again, shop for Petzl Helmets at your local climbing shop or online at petzel.com. Experience the difference with Petzl. And now back to the show. I wanted to ask you, what do you do to recharge? <sighs> I move, I stretch, I listen to music. Um, I think these are my best options and these are the things that work the best. So sometimes when, sometimes I forget and I forget that I have to be alone and just recharging on my own is, is so important. I don't have any special rituals. I know these days it's all like very, very popular to have rituals and, you know, wake up morning routine, good night routine, ritual for this, ritual for that. No, I just like being alone. And then um, in that alone time, I might lie on the floor and, and do weird uh, rolling figures on the floor, floor work, as a dancer would say, or um, put some music on and just listen to it or most likely move to it because usually I just can't listen to music without moving to it. Yeah, it's just so important for me to be alone. Kind of like even sensory deprived, like just in a quiet place also. So both, I guess, silence and music. Silence is super necessary for me. Movement, silence, music. These are the things. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like to go climbing alone? Yes, I almost always climb alone. Mm. It's good. <laughs> it's good. It's just I can't. <laughs> like, I, I don't get this whole, like, thing of, like, we're going to go and climb it with, like, 10 people. To me, yeah. it's just a waste of a good climbing set. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is really weird because I organize a festival to which 120 <laughs> people come and, like... That is funny. Oh. That is funny. Yeah. God, yeah, you must I just once... be drained after those festivals. Yeah. yeah. But like a couple of years ago, I went to an event that my friend organizes here in Fontainebleau. It's like a monthly climbing meetup. And it is a women's thing, or sometimes it also is presented as a thing for short climbers. Uh, it's called Betty Vita. And uh, my friend Helen, who organizes it, said like, well, you really should come and join us and participate. And I'm like, no, I shouldn't. Like, I don't really want to do. And, and I, I felt like she would be a little bit disappointed in me if I didn't go. So I went as a participant and within two hours, I was out of there crying. I was like, I can't do this. And I have no idea what people get out of it. But like, what is it? Like when you're climbing and there's like a bunch of people shouting behind your back, I'm just like, shut up. <laughs> I know it's probably not a popular like view, but like I'm trying to focus here. If anybody's shouting, it's going to be me because I'm trying hard. So uh -huh. like, <laughs> anti-social climber no no i think i think you're great and I, i'm glad you're like i'm glad you're sharing this and i hope it helps normalize it because i know a lot of people like that i mean i feel that way as an introverted person i i love climbing with friends now and then but i get this a lot like i'll i'll be planning a bouldering trip to go somewhere you know like every time i go down to waco you know i talk to people i tell them that i'm making this trip really soon or whatever and they're like oh who are you who are you going with who are you meeting there you know and i'm just like nobody i'm just gonna go <laughs> climbing <Yeah. laughs> like yeah. why would i need to have a, like a crew of people i just want to go to waco and try these boulders you know like maybe <laughs> maybe i need some more pads for some of them but like people will be there it's gonna be fine yeah. um so it's yeah, I, I, I like both. I often climb with, with friends. And if I have one or two friends that want to work on the same thing, I get a lot of energy from that sometimes. But I also love climbing alone. Um, and yeah. I think a lot of people I, do. I, yeah. 
I mean, I'm doing my good friends a disservice here because there is a few people with whom I love climbing, but I just almost feel like they're not external to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> they just have a really good vibe, and but they are not in any way random. There's like a very small group, and um, I wish I was more. I mean, I kind of also feel like maybe some people will be offended hearing me say this because sometimes you know like people just happen to be on the same block and I don't want them to feel if I if I'm saying now that oh I'd much rather be alone that it means I don't like them or something but it's just really not about them it's just that for me a better experience is an experience usually when me and the rock are alone yeah I think I would rather even go and support somebody on a project and you know just like move pads or spot them or if they need the shouting do the shouting then climb together mm. yeah after all it's a you know sport that you do in nature mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in a climbing gym but these days sometimes outdoors it feels like it's a climbing gym with so many people and it's a bit terrifying and a bit sad to me sometimes mm. Mm. like you know you meant to you meant to be happy that climbing is reaching more and more people but when you go to the crag and it's in nature and there's like 50 people you're just like uh this is not right right yeah yeah i feel that sometimes i don't know if you, as well. I don't know if you feel that yeah but I, f- I feel guilty for that because like you know i should be happy for these people to be out there right right but i'm like get off my rocks <laughs> like a horrible person <laughs> like absolutely horrible <laughs> well, luckily in fontainebleau i think there's um I'm sure it's pretty easy to get away from the crowds whenever you want to. Yeah, you can always find something quiet. It's actually quite challenging in the summer these days because um, so many blogs end up publicized immediately on like um, apps that tell you where they, they are, topos basically, or even websites. So somebody puts something up. Um, more and more often, even if they are local, they will put it somewhere on their social media account or on their uh, tick list somebody will pick it up somebody will share it and then you've got 15 people at that blog the next day so it's harder and harder but it's still possible yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) okay well i think we should probably get back to some more questions about the book huh um i loved all of that though thank you for letting me take us on these wild tangents (laughs) and and bounce all over no worries i just hope there was any sort of um substance to it so much there's been so much substance in every part of this conversation i've just i've just loved it um but yeah let me ask you this so going back to this feeling that you had that there was a book that climbers needed there was a book that connected us to where we came from that didn't exist yet that you wanted to try to create what were some of the things that felt important for you to share and and with this question i'd love for you to just give listeners an idea of this the scope of the book you've already talked about um you know ben moon and um john gill and some of these specific chapters but you know i i asked this because i think a lot of people listening that are new to climbing and showing up to what modern climbing is now and seeing competitions and climbing in the olympics and things like i think a lot of people have this sense that climbing started with john gill you know the godfather of american bouldering or with yeah. someone like ben moon or someone like Warren Harding in Yosemite, or even, I don't know, even Chris Sharma, you know, like that's what 
climbing is now and and those are the people that they think were at the forefront of it but of course it goes so far back to us realizing like oh we can actually climb these mountains that we see on the horizon and that discomfort and adventure that comes with that can be this really enriching experience so yeah what were some of the chapters in climbing history that felt important to try to capture and share so I just wanted to show where climbing kind of divided in itself from other human activities as something that was separate and done for the sake of it. And I wanted to show how we arrived at this point as well, because it's not that one day somebody just woke up and said, oh, I'm going to climb this rock. And, you know, this was this original idea that they had. But it was in a context of so much happening culturally, socially and So I actually start in mid 14th century with um, an account of a guy going up a mountain for fun, because I mean, there there might be many other accounts that we don't know of, many that haven't survived, but this is an account by a famous scholar, by a famous humanist, and it's been known for this um, unique thing, unique at this time in history of saying, I'm going up this mountain. I'm actually doing this physical labor to have fun because I want to see what's up top and how beautiful the, the view is. And the the climber, let's call him that, even though it was more of a walk, um, he did that because he actually read about mountains in Greece uh, that were supposedly inhabited by Greek gods. And so he already had this cultural reference that he was fulfilling by doing his climb. And he climbed this um little mountain in France and said, oh, by seeing the view from this mountain, I am actually glimpsing at Mount Olympus. I'm glimpsing at um, what I read about. And I find that this duality of experience versus um, referencing it towards something that we read, towards something that we aspire to or that we imagined is a very repeating narrative in climbing. So... um, when people started going to the Alps uh, in Europe, that was actually because so many of them were moved by the accounts of polar exploration, because it was at the time when when the British Empire was expanding and, and exploration was also um, a big part of it and reaching the parts of the world that were not reached before. So young British hungry for adventure men mostly would think like, oh, I I want to see this white frozen world, like in the accounts from the polar expeditions. And obviously the the North Pole was quite far. So they went to the Alps and they saw the glaciers. And then so much of it is like this voyeurism, almost like trying to to enact a role or to be somebody that you imagine yourself as. And um, yeah, like rock climbing literally happened as an extension of of hill walking, of exploring the outdoors and and of realizing that this little bit of danger, of excitement can be good for you. And that was something that was new. And that's something that's very modern in its at its core, because in sort of pre-modern times, people didn't have the scope to be uncomfortable on their own accord because they were uncomfortable for a lot of the time because there was no water in the tap. There was no electricity. There wasn't much food. There were diseases, you know, all those things that modern life brings us and that we take for granted, we're not there. So people didn't have the scope to to make themselves more uncomfortable. Right. And then that obviously entails that people who sought this uncomfort, discomfort, were people who were well-to-do. And here we start with the elitist and 
very sort of highbrow aspect of climbing's history, which is quite funny to 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 mention because um, I wrote an article a few years ago uh, which mentioned that climbing uh, had elitist um, roots, and and some British uh, readers got very upset, saying like, "Oh no, it's a working man's sport." Um, and yes, it was or it is, but it's just because they looked at a certain time in history that already came after the time when it was only the elites climbing. Mm. So I found that very funny to know that people, and that's obviously what we all tend to do. We we learn of something in the past and we take it as our sort of solid reference point without thinking, oh, maybe there was something before. Mm. I love that. I mean, yeah, that is something that you did so well with this book. And I, I can share some examples, I guess, in a minute. I want to ask you about a specific chapter that you shared and why it felt important to you to share. But I really was, <clears throat> yeah, I was really struck by that reading several of these chapters. Like, you know, if I think about it, of course, none of the history that you presented is new to me, but it's it's mm -hmm. just shocking to me. It's like really fascinating how easy it is to, just forget about it, you know, to watch all these um, films and draw all this inspiration from climbing in Yosemite, for instance, and completely lose sight of how climbing in Yosemite came to be and what was happening on that land before and yeah. how it came into the hands of affluent white people who had the space in their lives to seek out discomfort and adventure on the side yeah. of a mountain. Um, so yeah, let me ask you about the chapter on stolen land. I thought that was beautifully written and, and really important. And that's that's some history that many of us don't read in the history books. It's uncomfortable to read. And I think it's so important to yeah. to be aware of it. But yeah, what, what felt, what made that chapter feel important to share and to write? I think climbers have this tendency to look at climbing uh, as a thing separate from the social context. And it's something that is at the core of this chapter, which is basically that we look at the history of um, climbing in Yosemite and we don't move beyond climbing. So the insane thing for me is that what we perceive as the most sort of seminal breakthrough times in, in climbing's history, so like the 50s, 60s, 70s in Yosemite, all of these amazing ascents were happening within a mile from a village where people were basically being dispossessed, moved forcibly from their land and, and erased like systemically and, and in a very horrible way. And to me, it was very odd to realize that none of the climbing accounts that I read referenced the situation. It's like as if climbers in Camp 4 didn't look beyond Camp 4 and the, the rocks. But to me, that's impossible. Like, I mean, I don't want to apportion blame but it is incredible that the way the society works is that climbers felt so separate from what was going with the native inhabitants of the valley that they, they just didn't get mentioned at all. Like, you know, when for people, the biggest problem was what line they're going to climb next. People were being told that they need to move out because the only way you can live in the national park of, of Yosemite is if, if you're in full-time employment of the park, for example. And there were no full-time positions available. It was all seasonal work. So native people were told like, oh, okay, we made a national park here and you can't stay at home anymore. Mm. And so that was all happening throughout like, you know, the second part of the 20th century after World War II. That's super recent. And when it comes to like actual physical 
violence, that was just a couple of decades before John Muir. So to me, that's insane. Like how, how like I compacted that time, those time frames in my mind, and I was just shocked because it seemed impossible to me that those things coexisted, and we didn't make it a part of climbing history. But it's not, and that's just that's just shocking, and it's not right. So I, I tried to fix that to a degree with the way I told the story, but I know, don't know if I did because again, like people who were being erased and dispossessed were not giving a chance to tell their stories to the same degree that white people taking over their land were. Mm. And it's only now that these tribes are coming forth with force and and asserting their rights and trying to get back what was stolen from them. And only now that they are being heard, I, I find it absolutely mind boggling. And I think especially for the American audience, it's something that it should, it must be known. And I don't, I don't really know what is the level of recognition among say our generation about those things in the States, but I have a feeling it can't be that high because if it were, then there would be so much more referencing. And the only referencing I saw was practically Lonnie Kauk, who, 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 who brings all that stuff up because his mom comes from the people who were native inhabitants of Yosemite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, and he happens to be a climber. But other than that, what other climbers talk about this? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think you're absolutely right i think the level of ignorance is incredibly high and i don't say that to um i don't mean that to feel blaming of of anybody listening because i i fall into that too and i you know we we can't know what we don't know and none of us were raised Mm. with those history lessons you know it's it's just crazy actually like reading your book i was really struck by that like if i stop and think about it i rationally understand and and kind of intuitively I can connect the pieces. Like I know that white people came in to this country and took it, you know, stole it. And, um, and yet I, I've never really thought through or, or even just known any of the numbers. And I don't remember all the numbers perfectly off the top of my head from reading this chapter, but, you know, it, it really hit me differently to read that, you know, there was a maybe a few hundred thousand people living in California and the vast majority of them were native people until the gold rush. And then we came in and killed something like a hundred thousand native American people and took over Yosemite Valley and all these other places. And it just feels really different to actually read that and read those numbers and to stop and think about that. And, um, I don't even know what the takeaway is. Like, I don't know what we are left to do with that as climbers who want to be respectful of and and be aware of where we came from. But I, I think the first step is just stopping to really think about it and appreciate it um, and, and be yeah, aware. Recognition. Yeah. But yeah, as you say, like, it's super hard to to say what to do now because I feel like the way the world is, the way climbing is, it's kind of a direct result of that violence on many levels. So existing in that world, we kind of like just perpetuate the the wrong. And it is heavy. It is heavy. But then, you know, I don't want to fall here into this like, oh, it's so tough for me because I'm white. 
because that's just ridiculous. So yeah, I just recognizing and, and taking it from there and starting to think about it and hopefully giving space and voice to people who who should tell these stories. Like I am looking forward to reading and and hearing more accounts from people who who were not given the opportunity to give those accounts. Because if you're fighting for survival, if your house is being demolished, you're not thinking of writing your memoir. Hmm. Um, but hopefully these people, as, as some, um, well, I guess you can't really bring justice, but as people start thinking about it and, and life conditions hopefully improve for some of these dispossessed people, they will have a chance to to raise their voice and, and we'll... We'll have the chance to to hear from them. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, you've you've. It's it's funny. My wheels are spinning as you're saying this. It's definitely made me very interested in seeking out some of these stories myself, and sharing them in whatever way I can. So thank you for that. I was searching actually when I was doing research for um, on stolen land for any accounts that. Um, I could find from the Miwok, the Yokut tribes. And to be honest, it really seems that what is out there is things that are mostly like documentations of various gatherings, trying to get rights back, trying to get access to land back. As I say, like if you if your basic needs are being taken away or violated, like unfortunately there is not much space for for just telling stories, I suppose, which is totally understandable. And we need to hold space for this, definitely. Really, we just like, I mean, it's also different for me because I'm European, so I don't have the same sort of cultural reference as people in the States. But I think like the antidote to what is happening now, which is me falling into this like white person's sadness, is just shutting up and letting those underprivileged people talk. (laughs) Mm. Hopefully things will move in the right direction. I hope so too. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, And thank you for writing that chapter. It feels really important. And I think you did an amazing job with it. Thank you. I wanted to also ask you about Switzerland 2019. That was something Mm -hmm. that I think was, is that right? Did I get the name of that chapter right? I think it's 2017. Okay. Doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) I saw saw that pensive look on your face. Basically, it's a chapter about loss and experiencing loss in climbing. And I thought it was so interesting, so so great, I guess, first off, that you chose to include that and you did such an amazing job of capturing that. But that is such a such a part of climbing, you know, less so with rock climbing, especially nowadays with modern equipment and things and whatever else. But um, that's always been a part of climbing and living in the mountains and adventure and... I guess I was just curious why you chose to include that chapter as well. What felt important about that? Well, maybe for me, the way I perceive climbing isn't exactly the way a person who just does bouldering would perceive it. Because yes, I now only do bouldering, but I came to climbing from scrambling, from hiking and from doing technical scrambles. Um, I I don't want to say mountaineering because... That was it wasn't mountaineering, but it was definitely with the ambition to do mountaineering. And so, you know, it's a high risk activity. And every time you're in the mountains, people perish. And as soon as you start being a part of the community that goes out 
into the mountains, you will lose people. And for me, it's always been something that I was aware of because in a sense, I was on the fringes of a sort of mountain earring community in Poland, in the fringes in the sense of like, I wasn't doing it, but I always knew people who did it. I knew people who climbed Polish mountains, who went off to climb bigger mountains. And, you know, these would be people who climbed at the same climbing wall as me. And then one day, one of my climbing wall mates would not be there anymore because he went on an expedition. And um, when I would scramble and hike in the Tatra mountains, there were always, always, always accidents. And uh, this sort of sense of, um, of the fact that, I mean, life can just end in an instant. And I think in an instant, and I think it's very clear as soon as you as soon as you immerse yourself in the um, mountain setting and for me it was always almost natural when I was a child that was really weird that people would just perish like you would hear about it you would see the helicopter going out and then when I experienced loss in that sense because it was my really close friend that was gone I just realized how no, I don't want to say weird, but interesting. Our relation with going out there and doing what we love is because in a sense, we accept that things can go tits up. So I, I didn't want to exclude that part of my experience of climbing because I think as soon as you're not solely an indoor boulderer, you're... And even if you are solely an indoor boulderer, you are exposed to risks. Like I know of a person who was indoor bouldering, broke their spine and they're in a wheelchair. Mm. So, you know, things happen. And and obviously, I guess the odds for that are pretty much as low as the odds of tripping on a curb and, and doing yourself a serious injury. But I think to a degree, obviously, however, loss is terrible, to a degree that awareness and experience of human fragility is in part why experiencing the outdoors is so um, profound and, and, and enriching. Mm -hmm. Like even if you go out bouldering, you're suddenly just this animal moving in nature and, and you're not protected by, by lines that say, do not cross here because there is a gap or hold the handle because the tram will shake. You're just responsible for yourself and you know, life is fragile. And like, I struggle sometimes to, to see it as something beautiful, but it, I guess if it wasn't, it really would take away from how we experience it. Mm. Yeah, I, I find this really interesting, actually. Um, it, it reminds me, what's coming to mind for me right now is this kind of ongoing conversation that I've had with my parents over the last few years. Um, you know, especially now that they're listening to the podcast and I'm sharing more of my climbing on Instagram and things, you know, every once in a while I'll do something with some small amount of objective risk, you know, like a really tall boulder problem where there's higher consequences. And I can tell they just have a really hard time understanding the why of that. Like, why would you put yourself in that position when there's all of this rock climbing at your disposal that's not? objectively risky in the same way that a highball in Waco might be or something. It's hard to explain, but it is that balance that you're talking about where everything is so safe now and 
And yet it's not totally normal or natural. Like we are animals just existing in this world. And I think when we take away all of the adventure and, and kind of put soft cushions and bumpers on everything around us, it, it takes away some of the the depth or the richness, you know, that sure. with which we can experience life. I think that's just such an interesting thing because I'm not that interested in living a completely safe life. Um, yeah. I mean, I also don't want to come across here as this terribly adventurous person because people who know me know that I am a very careful boulderer, for example. And also I have dealt with fear of heights for most of my climbing life. But oddly, when like I am more open to taking objective risks in the mountains than I would be climbing a tall boulder. Mm. And I like for me, I need the stakes to be high in the sense of that I really want to experience something to to risk something but and it might happen quite rarely for me personally but just being a member of the climbing community you will be involved with people for whom that balance is completely different you know these might be people who just go soloing all the time and you just fall in with that crowd something will happen that's just that's just the stats but I might get, you know, when it comes to living a life not too cushioned, I might get my kick just climbing a block that's like 10 feet tall. And that's going to be extreme enough for me for a whole week or month. Yeah, yeah. And I'm the same. I, I don't want to paint myself as a thrill seeker because I'm certainly not. But um... but they are, there are people with definitely much higher tolerance for objective risks and myself like I um, recently climbed a couple of times with um, new transplant to Fontainebleau a friend called Josie and she's just so great at at height at a tall boulder same my mate Helen here she comes from a trad background you know she's bouldering her boulder pad is no longer under her it's fine I'm on an easy top out like you're just like oh god if you slip you're, you've broken both of your legs and you're like do you want me to move the pad she's like no I'm fine because She's got that tolerance for this uncertainty and that's innate to her and also to a degree trained. And I feel like I started my training for risk-taking and bouldering at a quite high anxiety level. So only now I'm sort of something starting to think like, okay, this, this block is easy. I actually don't need a pad or this block is tall, but I'm willing to take the risk. But with bouldering, this is something that I'm definitely learning and learning to have fun because also as you said like not the risk factor but the oh, how to say it like basically with risk taking comes certain freedom and i'm starting to see that i can appreciate it and have fun with it in bouldering as well like before in bouldering i would seek out a relative relatively safe experience now i might be like oh this boulder is taller i like it <laughs> um <laughs> But um, it's very different than mountains for me because in, in the mountains, like, while I never did anything uh, dangerous in the mountains, you know, I only led a few alpine routes in my life and on, up on mountain, in mountains that are smaller than the French Alps. So I have very limited experience. But somehow in mountaineering, I have this, like, it's just, I just saw so many people who went and gone mm. that that's just like kind of more normal to me, I guess, than thinking that you could actually hurt yourself bouldering. Right, right. I don't know if it makes sense. It's it's, it's a very subjective and non-sensible sort of point of view. 
because after all if you go bouldering on a tall boulder like the odds are pretty bad <laughs> um but yeah I, I think there is this duality for me between what i what i'm after in big mountains or on boulders and you know in big mountains it might be just scrambling but when i'm scrambling i'm gonna be happy with exposure and being like okay if i do it wrong that's it but i'm not gonna do it wrong and it just doesn't bring a second thought in my head while bouldering i'm like oh there is no pad if i make a mistake now am i happy with this potential outcome no i'm not i'm gonna bring another pad (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm kind of odd yeah no that makes sense that makes sense to me um yeah, I don't have any questions. I think that's I think that's so interesting. I'm really glad you included that chapter. I think it's such a good reminder for, especially for people that are coming into the sport now at this current age where we have where most of us start in a gym that's got these thick foam pads on the floor and and everything's relatively safe. People discover the adventure of climbing and the different ways they can experience adventure through climbing. You know, beginning there in that really safe space, and I think mm. I think it's. It, you know, there, there's this leap that has to happen at some point, and hopefully it happens through reading a book like yours rather than experiencing it firsthand for people. But I think it's really helpful to just know that, like, loss happens, you know, in, in this sport. Yeah. And and that's, it's tragic and it's sad, but it's also beautiful, I think, to be reminded of our mortality and really be able to take that and appreciate the time that we have because none of us are here forever. It's easy to lose yeah, sight sure. of that, I think, these days in, in our very safe world. So um, yeah, yeah, it's almost like it's a taboo that something could go wrong because we've removed so many dangers that we just have really low mortality rates. Yeah. So it, at least you know in the in the developed world, and it kind of makes it feel. I mean, it's great. I, I don't, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna complain that we don't mass die of polio anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I think it's good not to feel like the end of life is not a part of our life. And also on the note of climbing and safety, as you said, people start in the gym. But for me, a part of beauty about in climbing is taking responsibility from your, for your own safety. Mm. Like, you know, when I was 16 and learning the ropes, literally, that was the great thing. I was like suddenly on the rock whereby my life depended on me doing something and it just felt so empowering. And I I don't think I would be the same person that I am today, not to say that I'm a great person, but you know, maybe life is somehow easier for me because I had those experiences. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's quite the same experience when we, when you go indoor climbing on a, on a true blue. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Which absolutely terrifies me, by the way. I'm like, this thing is not going to work. I know. I, <laughs> I, Zofia, I can't tell you how many times I down climbed using a true blue before I finally just let go and trusted that weird magno- ma- magnetic circular box, you know? And I mean, I was like, I was like lead climbing at Smith four days a week and climbing 513 and whatever. And I was just like, I trust a human, yeah. but I don't know if I trust whatever is happening inside of that. <laughs> so, yeah. Like I've got one piece of protection 10 meters below me, but the route is easy. I'm fine. Yeah. True blue. Mm. And if you're really light, it also like, there is a delay. Right, right. So every time you go, you're like, oh, now it doesn't work. No, it still works. But like literally <laughs> there is a delay and it's horrible. 
hateful, mm. device, devilish thing. <laughs> <sighs> so you said in our first conversation that the hardest part of writing the book was finishing it, literally writing the last chapter. And I was mm. curious about that. I wanted to ask you why that was. What was it that was so hard about writing the last chapter of this book? Well, I think normally if you tell a story, there is some sort of a climax at the end. But with with an open-ended story, what is the climax? Like you have to choose it yourself. You have to find it. Does it have to have a climax? Does it, is it important that we peak and, and then there is this sense of like anticlimactic weird ending if you don't do it? So I just wanted to make sure that the book ended in a way that was true to how climbing's development is actually ongoing. So I didn't want to put any sort of fake big bang ending on it. But at the same time, for the sake of literally literary decorum, you need some sort of ending. So I think that was the struggle there, to put an end structurally to it and to wrap up a lot of the threads and thoughts that appeared throughout the book in a way that would sort of um, sort of leave the reader feeling like they came to an end of something, to an end of something, not mm. like that something was just chopped off. But, you know, what do you do? I didn't want it to be the Olympics because for me, the Olympics are not a defining point in climbing's development. I mean, they are defining in the sense that in the, in the sense that they will change things so much, but I don't want it to feel like I'm placing um, emphasis on it as something that climbing went toward and it was its like concluding point. Mm. So I didn't, I, I wanted to kind of avoid that to a degree if it was possible. So that's why it had to be a bit open-ended, but it had to be a bit, um, you know, books come to an end and you feel that books come to an end. Very few books end mid-sentence. And although that's very <laughs> avant-garde and some people have done it in the past, I feel like... I've never read one of those. That's <laughs> Yeah, I came across it. I also, I also read a series of essays out of which every single one ended mid-sentence. Literally mid-sentence. Wow. Yeah. Because basically, you know, it would be like an essay with the author's musing on a subject and there wouldn't be an end to it. So why why would you wrap it up by saying, and this is everything that I had to say about this today? Mm. So they would just leave it unfinished. And I love that. But I didn't think it was fitting because to a degree, I wanted that book to fit with the, I mean, it's a big and, and ambitious thing to say, but I wanted it to fit with the great tradition of climbing literature and those accounts that are kind of like canonic and classic and so I wanted it to be in a sense classic and that's why I wanted to have a structure with like a opening chapter and a closing chapter and it all feeling a little bit old style while at the same time hopefully being new style <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense yeah that's yeah that's great I don't want to ask you to give it away give the give the ending away but I I guess I'll just ask this what do you hope your readers take away from reading Born to Climb I would like them to realize that everything that we do is a part of something much bigger so as climbers doing what we do the way we do it is because we are following in the footsteps of so many who came, who came before us. And it's not because we need to have some sort of reverence for this, but it's literally enriching the experience to realizing that. And also realizing that I feel like we are more empowered to do the right thing, whatever that right thing is. Like at the moment for me, this might be realizing that climbing is impacting the environment. We are, and then from there you can go to, you know, being a human is impacting the environment. But climbers, so many climbers these days, they're consumers, they go to the climbing gym, they've got their pass, 
they've got the boulder set for them, that's it. Then they go to the forest and they don't realize that in the forest setting, they might not just be consumers, but they might be this, you know, person in nature that suddenly is responsible for that nature because we've taken so much from it over the course of the years. And knowing what this course of the years was, what happened, it kind of just like exposes people to the to the importance of things, to the depth of things, and it makes things seem more temporal. So if we don't protect climbing areas as they are today, they're not going to stay the way they are today. Like, just realize that everything is so transient and passing and that we are just a speck in it. I think that's that's quite a good feeling, even though it might seem like, oh, that's sad because I want things to be... I want my status quo of today to to perpetuate itself because that means, I don't know, I would live forever or my great climbing days will last forever. But it's actually so much more romantic and so much more interesting to just be a speck on the timeline. I love that. I completely agree with that. I think it's incredibly freeing to have our self-importance obliterated. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I, th- I think especially now, like we we are so the times and the culture. I think especially in America, but probably all over the world, you know, we just grow up with this weight of feeling like we have to do something amazing and we have to leave this mm. lasting legacy behind us and make this huge impact and whatever. And it's it's a real gift if if any of us find something that we feel passionate about where we can do that on any level, but. It's also not totally normal, I think, you know, like it's it's maybe not the the most obvious way to exist as a human. Like it's also so wonderful to just exist day to day and just be present and enjoy yeah. the little things. So, yeah, I love it. I mean, I, I listened to um, a conversation that you had recently on another podcast, which was about um, following your passion. And it's... Um, my friend said to me a few years ago that she thought so many people just had their answers answered for them because they started families. Mm. And if you don't start a family, then what do you do? But then again, this idea of like everybody has a passion to follow, has to have a passion to follow. It's a very individualistic and recent idea. Like we, we didn't do that. And I think even if somebody's not starting a family, being a part of a community is also so important. So it's like this balance between knowing that you're not all that self-important, but also having agency and realizing that you're a part of something bigger and therefore don't litter in the forest. (laughs) 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 Like, you know, um, it's just a very weird sort of existential sandwich of being unimportant and at the same time incredibly crucial to everything, I think. Sophia, you're awesome. I could just talk to you for hours and hours. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation, every bit of it. That's um, so nice. It's so fun to, so nice. to learn more about you and um, so great to learn more about the book and how it came to be. I really enjoyed reading it and uh, I hope everyone listening that has enjoyed this conversation will check it out. Um, and on that note, I want to ask you, who's this book for and how can people find it? The book is for every climber, hopefully, in the sense that everybody who's new to climbing will learn about this world they had no idea about. But as you said earlier, for people who may be 
already know all of the details, including in the book, because I'm sure there are loads of people who do. Hopefully the way it's structured will bring something more to them, something new, a new perspective. So the idea is that this, I wanted it to be a book that should be like a, like a textbook almost for our sport, which is weird. And again, I'm not sure if I managed to achieve it and probably it's it's even a goal that's too big to achieve, but but hopefully people will get some of that through it. And if they would like to see if that happens, they can find it in any bookstore that stores climbing books. So um, I don't know what that is in the US. Any bookstore, really. I have no clue. Distribution <laughs> is tricky. Uh, Amazon will have it. Okay. Um, God, I should, I should, um, I should make sensible sentences coming out of my mouth now. Um, <laughs> well, that's okay. Maybe that's on me. You and I can talk after this. Um, this will probably publish in a month, maybe even a little later yeah. than that. So I'll check in with you. I'll see what the status is. Because has it gone to print yet? I, I forget. Yeah, it's it's with the printers at the moment. It's with the, the problem is that okay. yeah, the U.S. distribution is going to be quite delayed in relation to Europe. Yeah, basically, unfortunately, in the US, it's going to be later because it needs to be shipped on a ship from the printers in Sheffield. Got it. <laughs> but as soon as it is shipped on a ship from the printers in Sheffield, it will be in any bookstore that has climbing books and also on Amazon, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending how you look at it. Um, it should be widely available. Yeah. I love to ask authors this because I don't have a strong sense of how the publishing world works at this time. Um, what gets the most money in your pocket you know, as far as where people can find the book and, and purchase it? It's probably not Amazon. That's why I'm asking that. It's best for me if it's directed from the publisher. But if you're overseas, as in not in the European Union, it means that you have to pay double the price because okay. of shipping. Got it. So, but unfortunately, uh, definitely supporting independent booksellers is always better than supporting a big online corporation. Okay. <laughs> Love it. Noted. Yep. Um, Even if it doesn't change my direct um, income very much, it affects the industry. And I think it's important that, that we still have somebody selling the books beyond Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That's great. Okay. What about an ebook version? Is there like a Kindle version or anything where people can can read this? There will be an ebook version and there will be an audiobook version. Um, awesome. I don't yet have the exact details on when that's going to happen, but certainly it will. And I know that, funnily enough, with my publisher, most authors read their own books. I was about to ask I don't that. think I can do that because I, <laughs> I can't subject people to my to my accent for like what no your accent's great i love i mean i love accents i yeah but it's bizarre like i chop sentence you know what i mean like people normally <laughs> connect words and i chop them i think you should so read it's, it it's, oh no if you're comfortable with it that's my two cents i think it'd be great i think people would be just like good god what's wrong with them <laughs> Like, especially British people, I think. I think Americans are less sensitive, but British people are pretty discerning when it comes to accents. <laughs> All right. Well, whatever you decide to do, I'm sure it'll be great. Um, for everyone listening, if you enjoyed this, please follow Zofia on Instagram at UpThatRock. Is that right? Yep, UpThatRock. I'll be sure to link to it in the show notes and I will keep you guys posted. I will stay in touch with Sophia and try to give you guys updates when the book publishes, when it comes back from the printers and when it's available for 
purchase in the States and all over. So yeah, anything else you want to, you want to share anything else we didn't talk about that feels important to share before I let you go? Um, no, maybe just, you know, circling back to, um, social interactions. That was super pleasant, but by God, I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean, I think it's normal. I think it's normal that, you know, you you talk to a relative stranger for two hours, it will be tiring. Yeah. But I just feel like I'm starting to have troubles formulating sentences in English. Okay. Literally glitching. Well, you... I I just wanted to put it out there, just sort of like make a point of like, this is normal for some people to be tired <laughs> after you have a conversation and it's fine i'm gonna go lie down and all will be well i love it well i i can relate to some degree i often feel like i need a nap after i finish one of these it, it's it's just funny because it gives me so much energy and i love it so much and i feel so fulfilled and i enjoy these conversations so much but it is exhausting yeah and i often feel like i just need to just go on a walk in silence or just literally lay down and take a nap after having a, an interview like this. But, um, so, so I can't imagine. And I just want to say thank you so much for being here, for sharing all of that, for going along with my wild tangents and, um, being flexible as I bounced all over the place. This has been a really great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. And thank you for all of your questions and like holding the space for me to say all of those weird things, I suppose. It's my favorite, my favorite thing. Love it. Thank you. All right. I'll let you go. Cheers. Thank you very much. Have a good walk or nap. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. <laughs> I'll be in touch. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Leaving. Hey friends, before you go, just a quick update on Born to Climb, Zofia's book. It is now available for purchase, and unfortunately you can only buy it on Amazon right now in the US, but yeah, it's available. You can buy it right now and check it out. I highly recommend this book, especially if you enjoyed this conversation and thought it was interesting. I put links to Zofia's book and all the things in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com, so be sure to check that out. And be sure to check out Petzl. Shop for Petzl helmets at your local climbing shop or online at Petzl.com to get top and side protection to keep your noggins safe if, God forbid, the unexpected happens. You can experience the difference with Petzl. Also, be sure to check out Athletic Greens. I think of this stuff as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I take it every day. I took it this morning. If you want to try it out, head over to athleticgreens.com slash nugget. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Also, be sure to check out Fizzy Vantage. If you want to try their supercharged collagen or any of their other incredible products, then head over to fizzyvantage.com. Use code nugget15 at checkout for 15% off your next order. And finally, be sure to check out Crimped. Head over to crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the App Store. It's available on iOS and Android, and it is free to try. I love this app. I've used many of the different workouts. I'm using their flexibility workout right now. It's called Hip and Leg Flexibility. So go check it out if you hate stretching and want to make it easy like me. 
And that's it, my friends. Thank you for listening to the very end. I appreciate you guys so very much, as always. Happy 4th of July, if you're listening to this on the day that it comes out. I hope you have an amazing week, and we will see you next time. Like we do it.